I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey everyone, it's Alden, the producer of Shut Up Evan. This episode was recorded remotely during quarantine. You might notice some changes in audio quality throughout the episode, but the content is just as good. So stay home, stay healthy, and enjoy the episode. On today's show, Broadway actress and celebrated recording artist Shoshana Bean. Bean, who has appeared on Broadway in Hairspray, Wicked, and Waitress, talks about the rigors of training at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. It made me so ferocious Uh, It also made me so, so, so hard on myself and so terribly insecure and never really feeling like I'm good enough. Even at the peak of these beautiful moments in my career, I look back and I'm like, you didn't own them or appreciate them or, or have gratitude for them because most of the time you were looking around like, I don't deserve to be here. Assuming the role of Alphaba from Adina Menzel. No one prepares you. Adina never pulled me aside and said, bitch, like, this is what's coming your way. These are the expectations from above. This is your job as the leader of this cast. This is your job. This is what you're, bo- you're putting your body through every day. Making the leap to recording music. I was always being policed for being too pop. So it felt like I was too Broadway to be pop and I was too pop to be Broadway. Every time I went for a meeting or, or shared my music, it was always like, yeah, it's a little too Broadway. And in my mind, I'm like, I am the least Broadway Broadway there is. And returning to Broadway in 2018 as the star of Sarah Bareilles' musical, Waitress. Huge challenge to come back to be in that vulnerable of a position again, to be judged and criticized and to have a very different world of social media than I did 15 years ago, to be able to voice their opinions about what I'm doing, to play an ingenue at the age that I am, to approach a role that I think that I approach very differently from some of the other women, to approach a role that is not a ferocious woman like a Fanny Bryce and a CeCe Bloom and an Alphaba, but to, to try to attempt something smaller and, and more still, that was, I'm very proud of that. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Roskatz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am joined once again by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. How are you? I'm really good. This is episode 15. We have been putting out an ep- podcast episode and a Patreon extended interview for 15 weeks. Uh, which feels kind of crazy. That sort of flew by. I feel like not too long ago, it was like episode two. Yeah, and also we've now gotten into the flow of doing this sort of Zoom version of podcasting, which I was so averse to in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And now that we've kind of finessed the the visual element of it, and it's not just, it's, you know, I, at the beginning I was like, this is just gonna be like a phone call. Yeah. But now it's like, I I wouldn't say I prefer it. Obviously I love it in person, but this has really become um, a medium that works. I prefer it to be honest, I think, but here's why. So, well, first of all, obviously as the listeners know, sometimes there are technical difficulties and the everybody recording themselves, accents happen, whatever. Mm. Um, but the thing that I like about it is with the video component, if we were recording in person, the production needed to actually have a video version of our podcast would be way too much. We would need a camera crew and then we'd need to go edit that. But when we're all staring at a computer and just recording a Zoom call, it's super easy for everyone. So uh, once this quarantine ends, who knows when, 2021, uh, we won't have the video stuff anymore, which is kind of sad. It is sad. Um, But anyway, 
Uh, I also want to just give a shout out to our Patreons. We got an influx of new Patreon subscribers this week. Obviously, we're so appreciative. Thank you so much. Welcome to the pod. Welcome. Um, I did want to let everyone know that we are going to start releasing some Patreon exclusive content that's not just extended interviews. So starting off this week, we're going to have a little mini interview with Sutton Strack. She is the newest housewife on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and a much buzzed about housewife if you're watching the current season, which you really should be. This is like, really, we're having an upswing right now with The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. But anyway, Sutton came on my radar in the first episode because she filmed with Lisa Rinna at Domenico Dolce's apartment. That's Domenico Dolce mm. as in, yeah, one Dolce half of- Gabbana. Exactly, you got it. Uh, and so Lisa Rinna texted me at the time saying, don't go too hard on me. And I was like, I, you know, I would never go after you. I mean, like, you do you. Um, and you know, I, I I thought I thought the whole thing was funny, but anyway, in her now five episodes, Sutton has made quite an impression, and so I did a little profile of her that uh, just went up on Paper Magazine. But I wanted to include an audio bite from the interview uh, for our Patreons, in which she sort of talks about her personal relationship with Stefano Gabbana and Domenico Dolce, and. I think it just sort of textures the conversation to hear someone who actually knows these people and regards them so highly uh, speak to what they like about them. Anyway, check it out on the Patreon. As you said, that's Patreon content that is exclusive to Patreon subscribers. We're going to try doing more things like that where we're producing little interview bits, little segments just for Patreon. So beyond the extended interviews that our Patreons currently receive, um, there'll be some extra bonus content in there. And just again, like, thank you so much. Like this is, uh, this podcast is a huge labor of love um, between Alden and myself. And it's really lovely to see this sort of support from people. And I appreciate whether you're a Patreon or just someone listening and, and those of you providing feedback and whatnot. It's so greatly appreciated. So if anybody has, you know, specific guests that they want to see or a conversation that they want to see us have, I know last week people seemed to be really receptive to the conversation about the Corona rave. I'm not going to, the other thing people are. The Rona rave? Yeah, but no, when people say like the meth gala, I don't like that. Um, I like it. But anyway, I know last week we got a big response to the conversation we had about the rave that took place, rave, you know, the party that took place during coronavirus. And I'm eager if there's other conversations you are wanting us to dabble in, I'm all game for it if people want to hear about it. So I really would love to hear from people. Feel free to shoot me a DM on Instagram um, or, you know, tweet me, whatever. And send me your nudes. I heard you, you got a nude. I got a nude. I got a single nude. I the power of the pod. I wasn't expecting it, but thank you, sir. Hmm. Hopefully, for, hopefully not the first. Um. Definitely not the first. Hopefully not the last. Oh wait, sorry. Mean- sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about Broadway, um, because our guest Shoshana Bean has been on Broadway multiple times, and she's just so fabulous. And she, for me when I was younger, was one of those first performers when I was in high school that I would literally buy bootleg productions of Wicked from this guy, Stephen Winterhalter. Hi, Stephen, if you're out there. I would literally, <laughs> he had a website and he would just list Broadway shows and the date of the recording and he would sell them. I think they were like $25 a pop and I would go ape shit. Like these were Pokemon or I don't know, things that people collect. I don't, you know. Um, <laughs> These were huge for me, and I actually still have a bunch of them to this day. But anyway, Shoshana uh, was the first replacement for Adina Menzel in Wicked. And at the time, it was just this opportunity to hear a new vocalist perform these songs that I so loved. And I just was so obsessed with Shoshana's voice. Now, it's not a great time for theater. Um, Just this past Thursday, Disney Theatrical Productions announced that its stage adaptation of Frozen will not reopen on Broadway once the pandemic eases. This makes it the first closure to be announced due to the current crisis going on. And that's obviously a really sad thing and particularly unexpected from a juggernaut like Frozen. Obviously, Frozen was not a critical darling by any measure, especially comparatively to Disney's show The Lion King. They also have Aladdin. Again, not... Aladdin, I think, was uh, more well-received than Frozen. But I just thought because of the intellectual property that is Frozen, I just expected a longer life. And obviously, that's really sad. And I'm hopeful that when this is all said and done, we will see something 
we will see Broadway flourish once more. It's it's hard. Let look. We have to be honest. It's hard to imagine how Broadway will get back on its feet or get people back in its chairs because you know the model for instance that I know some restaurants might see like this sort of like 50% capacity Broadway can't function at 50% capacity it's just not an option what do you mean is it because they they need to sell more tickets than that to sustain the cost absolutely there's just no show on Broadway. Theaters are not built to house 50% capacity. Wicked obviously is selling out, but a lot of these shows, even the ones that aren't selling out, they're still operating at a 70, 80% capacity, maybe even down to 60, but it's like once it's 50 is your max capacity, it just can't run. Essentially, if you think about it this way, if Broadway does eight shows a week and they go to 50% capacity, it would be doing eight shows a week, but only doing the audience of four shows. Um, look at me doing math. So it's unfortunate. It's I'm eager to see what the Broadway League and and what these mega producers can come up with. It's disheartening to see a, a you know entity like Disney Theatrical Productions pulling out right now. I, I, that that just doesn't bode well. Um, but in the meantime, to sort of keep spirits lifted for myself at the very least, I've been revisiting a lot of like old Broadway. I think it just began because there were like there was that swell of uh, you know, there was the Passover Seder in which Shoshana Bean and Cynthia Erivo performed When You Believe. Um, the casts of Hairspray, the Broadway and the film and regional productions, they recently put out a video of them performing You Can't Stop the Beat. Um, Annie did uh, uh, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow with Sarah Jessica Parker and, and a huge cast. There's been a lot of instances of like theater people coming together and doing what they do best. Um, another great example of that was... Uh, the Sondheim 90th birthday concert, the most recent one, I kind of went down a rabbit hole and I was like revisiting a lot of Sondheim's old work and I found myself once again looking at his 80th birthday concert from 2010. Um, I highly encourage anyone who's interested in musical theater or just if you like phenomenal performances. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, it's got Audrey McDonald and Bernadette Peters and Patti Lapone and so many of the greats. But I really wanted to highlight one performance in particular that just really, I don't even want to say it brought a smile to my face. It made me like feel, I mean feel. And it's uh, Elaine Stritch uh, and she performs the song, I'm Still Here. Times a long time. Sometimes, sometimes just bristles and beer. I have run the gamut, A to Z. Three chairs, damn it, say me. I got through all of last year, and I'm here. So I wanted to read a little excerpt from the New York Times review of the concert from 2010. Okay says, quote, it remained for Miss Stritch to deliver the evening showstopper, I'm Still Here. This great trooper, now 85, used her increasing physical fragility to maximum dramatic effect, building the anthem of show business survival from a dismissive casualness to a peak that was not the usual triumphal assertion of ego. Instead, it became a struggle for the character to break through her own fatigue and little bursts. The final phrases of this daring interpretation ended on a note of ambivalence, as if to say, I may still be here, but at this point, what does it really matter? The performance received a standing ovation. I'm still here. Yes. So obviously, hello vocals, hello performance, hello icon, legend. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, just revisiting Broadway has been something lately I found that's brought me so much joy. What's your relationship to Broadway? So when I was here for school, I'd never really like, I'd never seen a show. I'd never been to one. I was growing up, I think I was much more into like nerd culture than gay culture. That's kind of where I sort of formed that first identity. So by the time I was like in New York, like theater wasn't something that I was eager to go see. And then I was dragged to a show by my boyfriend at the time. This was in college. Um, and it was something, there was a movie version of it. And I know that like my older brother liked this movie. So I thought it was some stupid rom-com musical thing, but he was super into theater, this boyfriend. Um, so I was like, okay, fine, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go and just endure this and do this for you. We sit down and the show that we are seeing is Rent. 
Um, and I know that my older brother had liked this movie version of some musical that he watched with his girlfriend. So I assumed it was a rom-com. And needless to say, I uh, was kind of taken aback when a few minutes in, I realized, oh, this is about AIDS. Um, and I don't think to this day I have been as emotionally just devastated, sobbing, going through this uh, super powerful emotional <laughs> like uh, experience when I saw the show because I was, you know, expecting a rom-com, which Rent is not. I would say Rent is expressly not a rom-com. <laughs> even it's like, even it's few um, moments of, of lightheartedness, uh, mm -hmm. even those don't really get a laugh out loud as much as they do a soft chuckle. Yeah. Good show though. Great show. Um, so now we're going to go from one great vocalist to another. I love this person so very much. I've had the pleasure to know her for a couple of years now and interview her before. But one thing I just want to highlight about this conversation that I really, really loved is I loved the honesty about looking back on past behaviors and being able to say, I don't love that person that I was or that that was not a fully formed version of the person I am today. I find that sort of introspection in people, I value that so much in a person. I relate to that so much. And to hear someone so honest about that is really refreshing. It takes a lot of like humility to be able to have that assessment of yourself, which is I think one of the most like admirable qualities in a person. Agreed. Do you want to take us in? No, go ahead. No. I'm good. I'm done. <laughs> Uh, so that, no, I didn't mean that in a mean way. No, no, oh, okay. me neither. I'm just done. I'm, I'm... Uh, so without any further ado, please enjoy our interview with Shoshana Bean. She is a singer, a songwriter, and a stage performer whose illustrious credits include Alphaba and Wicked, succeeding Tony nominee Adina Menzel, Shelley in the original Broadway production of Hairspray, and Jenna in the Broadway production of Sarah Bareilles' Waitress. She has released four studio albums, including 2008's Superhero, 2013's O'Farrell Street, 2014's Shadow to Light, and 2018's Spectrum. All four albums were released on her own label, Showtime Records. She has sung with artists including Michael Jackson, Brian McKnight, Cynthia Erivo, Ariana Grande, and more. She is poised, she's energized, she's wise. She's a true showstopper and a friend. I am elated to welcome Shoshana Bean. Thank How's you, it my going? love. It's I'm it's going. How about you? <laughs> it's falling off the rails a little bit. Yeah. But we're hanging in there. Yeah. I want to start by talking about your recent performance of When You Believe, a duet from the <laughs> 1998 animated musical The Prince of Egypt. Who knows what miracles you cannot see? You performed it with your friend and frequent collaborator, Cynthia Erivo, accompanied by the song's composer, Stephen Schwartz, for what was called Saturday Night Seder, a benefit that raised over $3 million for the CDC Foundation. Crazy. I love that song. I love the both of you <laughs> singing that song. Can you give me the behind the scenes of how that song and that arrangement came together for the three of you? It was Benj Pasek's idea. Our very dear friend, Benj, hit me up and initially just said, like, I'm doing this Seder thing. I want you to be involved. I said, of course, whatever that you want, anything for him. And then he was like, here's my idea. I'm thinking that you and Cynthia should sing when you believe. And I was like, I'm totally down if she's down. And then I can't remember what made Benj think to ask Stephen to do it, but it just was like a perfect trifecta. And I think it turned out as well as it possibly could. I think we've learned a lot since then. I think that the thing that made me the most happy about it was the response that I got from it. My thing is I'm never trying to be impressive. I just want to make people feel something. And when people responded the way that they did to that video, the thing that was the most important to me and so special to me was they were like, you cracked me open. You sort of pried the lid off. I think we've all just been like sitting in this very strange, like 
you know, some people have been feeling more than others and some people have been allowing all those feelings to come to the surface more than others. But I think that this is what this time is for, peeling back the layers and getting into the yucky stuff. And sometimes people need access to that. And I think what we provided with that duet, with that song, with all its imperfections was access. It just sort of cracked people open. And that's the most important thing to me. So I was happy about that. It's so funny that you say imperfections plural, because as someone who has listened to it hundreds of times at this point, <laughs> I cannot find an imperfection uh, within uh, that. And sweet. also- Cynthia and I are like notorious perfectionists. So we both were like, you know, pulling our hair out. It's also just such a perfect song given the times that we're in. And I feel like we're we're hearing a lot of songs now sort of being put into the container of the time that we're living in and some of them fit better than others. And that is one that just with everything that's going on, the message of that song, so powerful. So love that. I agree. I agree. So off of that and talking about the Seder, let's talk about your Jewish roots. You are Jewish. (laughs) I am Jewish. I just had Isaac Mizrahi on the podcast. (gasps) Oh, very fancy. He also performed at the Saturday Night Seder, and we talked at length (laughs) about his Jewish identity. And so I'm curious, how much was Judaism a part of your early life? You know, it's so funny. I'm watching Shtisel on Netflix right now, which is an Israeli um, television show. I'm late to the party, I know. But last night, they... I can't remember what blessing he was saying. And I just started weeping because I remembered that growing up every night before bed, I would say the Shema with my mom. So I think there were like little things in place. And I think, of course, so much of Judaism is rooted in tradition and so much of tradition involves family. And I haven't been around my family on a consistent basis since high school. So, and you know, I think as grandparents pass and great aunts and uncles pass, like there's less and less of that. I was well immersed in the culture and the religion until I was bat mitzvah. And basically that was the deal. It was like, these are the requirements. You are going to Sunday school every week. You're going to Hebrew school every week. You are participating in youth group, you know, USY, BBYO, whatever. Once you are bat mitzvah, it is your choice to make. After that, you know, obviously I had to go to all the family events and high holidays and stuff. And I just socially never really found myself locking. When I was in college at CCM, majoring in musical theater, I electively took a lot of Jewish studies classes because I had so many questions. You know, I started to ask the questions about like, well, why am I just supposed to believe this? Because that's what you told me to believe. And like, I felt like I would feel more going to a Pentecostal church or a Kojic church and listening to a gospel choir saying than going right. to synagogue. And I was like, this is the disconnect for me because what I'm looking for is that emotional connection. And unless I'm with my family, I don't feel that. So I thought it was really interesting this year in particular, because having to get four generations of both the Bean family and then the next night, my mom's side, which is my mom's mom's side, to get four generations of these Jews on a Zoom Passover Seder. It was so special and just like made me realize how lucky I am that we have that, that we still have Seders every year, that we still have a connection with one another. I think it's been an interesting strengthening. So yeah, I don't know. I know for me, my own Jewish identity has not played a predominant role in my life until maybe like a year or two ago when Uh I started to really discover an eclectic Jewish community here in New York and tapped into it. And I'm just curious, in your experience, have you really been connected to the Jewish community in a way that was meaningful for you through the years? I think especially in New York, because I think you're in entertainment, you're in the theater, there's Jews everywhere. Do you know what I mean? And I think the thing about Jews is you meet each other and you already behave as if and feel as if you are mishpucha. You already feel like family just by nature of the culture and the vernacular, just the way we are. It's like, oh, you see your cousin, your uncle, your dad, your mom, your grandma, like you we're just all very it just feels immediately familiar. It's just a weird understood, but difficult to articulate thing. So yes, in New York, much more so. I feel like I have a massive extended Jewish family by way of the community and by virtue of just like actual family and extended family. And here in LA, not so much. I have a couple, but it's again, just like with anything in LA, it's not as interconnected as New York is. So everything is a little more spread out here and takes a little more effort. And Benj and I have this sort of like agreement or discussion about how New York is about connection and community and LA is about your connection to yourself, your relationship with yourself. When did theater 
first come on your radar. And I don't even necessarily mean the inclination to perform, but even just like an interest in that art form. I started performing in a theater troupe at like age six, but I'm pretty sure that before that it was watching movie musicals with my grandma. And I think it was like Streisand, you know? I mean, that's a good answer. It's the right answer, really. (laughs) You trained at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. And I just remember as an NYU student, my understanding of the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music was that it was like a boot camp mentality and that you guys were really worked your fucking asses off. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, I thought we worked so hard. And then I would hear the stories about what you all did. And I was like, oh, we have it kind of easy. (laughs) What did that environment teach you about art and about yourself? Well, I do want to say like, as the years have gone on, I think we have all individually and collectively kind of been like, what the hell happened there? And a lot of what happened there was not okay, but it was a different time and a different culture. And, you know, we all paid a lot of money to go there and we were the 20 some elite that got in. I think that the workload was intense and the the expectations were intense, which I think was fantastic. I think the way we were treated and pitted against one another and manipulated and emotionally and verbally abused, that was not okay. And I think, again, we didn't realize that that's what it was. And we've had some conversations lately where we're like, no, that wasn't okay. Right. And, and the other person was like, no, that absolutely was not okay. So there've been some wounds that have had to be healed over the years, but I think what it taught me about the business was I do believe that when we landed in New York, we were overprepared for stepping into the audition circuit and being competitive and being prepared and being professional. We were definitely prepared for that. Were we prepared to look at another woman as not your competition, but someone to link arms with and raise up? No. That took me a couple of years to realize like, oh, there's enough for everyone. This is not CCM. We are not being pitted. We don't need to be pitted against one another. In fact, we are all so much more powerful if we collectively raise one another up. And that took some undoing, unfortunately, because I don't believe that I really was ever competitive by nature because I wasn't in sports and theater was more of a community thing. As someone who's gone on to teach and mentor other generations of performers, I have found it beneficial to know that you do not teach through fear and you do not teach by destroying someone's confidence. I do believe in tough love and I do believe in pushing people outside of their limits and challenging their comfort zones and challenging their confidence. But I do not believe in attacking their vulnerabilities and manipulating to get a result. It worked with most of us. It worked with most of us. It made me so ferocious. It also made me so, so, so hard on myself and so terribly insecure and never really feeling like I'm good enough. You know what I mean? Even at the peak of these beautiful moments in my career, I look back and I'm like, you didn't own them or appreciate them or, or, have gratitude for them because most of the time you were looking around like, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not good enough. Like, you know what I mean? And I think that that was a lot of of what happened to us at that school left us just like wounded. And (laughs) that's the truth of it. It's a different school now. There are different people in charge, but I I think that a lot of us share a similar experience Mm. there. It's a lovely thing though, that through your work as an educator, you can sort of correct those wrongs that that you saw within the system. So you come out of school and you were extremely prepared. And perhaps as a result of that preparation, you book your first gig very quickly. So you come to New York City after graduation. Shortly thereafter, you're cast in Hairspray. And this show blows up. Eight Tony Awards. It's a cultural phenomenon that... I think the last time we had something like that was probably Hamilton. But like, we, you know, you get shows like this. Producers. You know, these shows that... Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. That become bigger than Broadway. This was one of them. You were a part of it. You're amongst a cast of, correct me if I'm wrong, but largely newbies to Broadway. Yeah, for the most part. For a lot of us, it was our debut. Yeah. Yeah. But monsters, like a, <laughs> an ensemble full of stars. Like it was insane. Oh, it's you know I mean? wild. Yeah. Um, so many wonderful people. Uh, yeah. What was that experience like for you to not only be making your Broadway debut, but have it be in a show that's just the toast of the town? It was insane. I still and always do say, and I never can talk about Hairspray without crying, ever. Um, It's still the best two years of my life. And those people still are the people who make up my family and the people that I speak to 
almost every day. It was insane. I think it was a perfect storm of like timing and necessity. We came in right after 9-11, essentially, you know, 9-11 had happened. We came in in the, the summer after and people just were starting to recover and heal. And we kicked down doors that like, you know, we were on TV shows and performing at events that no Broadway show had ever done. So we felt very fancy. We felt very important, you know, silly stuff like we could get tables at restaurants and get in the clubs. And like, we just were special because we were in Hairspray. And, and that is not always the case. Not only is that not always the case, but you do not always get blessed with a company of people from the top down that create that kind of a family. That doesn't happen every time. That was that was lightning in a bottle. So you come from this rigorous structure at CCM and you land within the rigors of the Broadway system, which mm-hmm. is this eight show a week, just beast. What did you learn initially in going from one rigorous educational system to, I guess, in a sense, another educational system with equal or greater rigor? Yeah. Again, I think that everything at CCM was so much harder than the real world Mm. was. It was like an SAT prep course. You take that and you're like, I'm never going to make it through the SATs. And then you take the SATs and you're like, that wasn't that bad. If you do those difficult prep courses. So for me, eight shows a week, I remember I I was a lot younger then. So I was capable of I had, you know, higher stamina, higher endurance, higher recovery time. Like it just, everything was just... I was able to do Jerry Mitchell choreography eight times a week. I mean, we were broken. We were exhausted. We were hurting. We were in PT. We were, you know, but we had the energy to do it somehow. And I remember we like, when we started it all, we were like hooked on coffee and and candy. We were just like, whatever it takes to get through this. And then as we started to fall apart, we were like, okay. And we all found this like, holistic doctor uptown who was like, no sugar, no white, anything. You know, we were like living on protein and potato chips kind of, but we, we, I don't know, man. We just, it was such a gift. You know, hairspray never felt like a job. It never felt like a job. And if it ever did, the second you start nicest kids in town, like it's over because it's just joy from top to bottom joy from top to bottom and you're playing with your friends every day. So it just never, and I was lucky enough to cover three tracks. I covered Tracy, Velma and Prudy. So I was on all the time for somebody. So my job was constantly changing. And yeah, for me, it just was never someone else whose birthday is today, Shirley McLean. She came to the show one day after I had swung out that day to watch the show in the matinee. And I remember being so disillusioned watching it because we really, as the ensemble, thought we were like, you couldn't have told us we were not principal characters. Like we really had crafted a show and a backstory that had us back there living our own full lives. And I assumed everyone was watching us because we were stars. And I go and swing out and watch the show from the sound booth. And I'm like, we are in the dark. The entire, we are giving you a full soap opera and we are in the dark. And I was devastated. And I'm like, why am I working so hard? Why am I killing myself? So I, I went back into the show that night and I'm like, I am not working this hard anymore. It is pointless. No one can see us. It's pointless. And again, we start the show and I can't even get to nicest kids in town before. I'm like, it's just not in me. And this show's DNA does not allow for any less than 195%. Like it just, it wasn't possible. And sure enough, Shirley McLean came back that night and Harvey was like, uh, Miss Bean, Shirley would Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'd like to see you in my dressing room. And she just poured over me and prophesized my future and was highly complimentary. But I just remember being like, someone is seeing us. 
people yeah. are seeing us. So that didn't answer your question at all, but except to say that like it was rigorous, but it wasn't a question. It was just like, how lucky are we to show up to this gig every day with these people and to bring joy? And the audiences were insane back then. And as soon as things started to taper and I started to feel like I might be running out of gas, I put in my notice because I just have never been someone who can show up without giving that and the show deserved more and I wanted to move on to other things and it just felt like it was time. So you exit the show and then you told me in a previous interview that at that point you were done with theater and you had your sight set on going into pop and R&B music. Uh-huh. But then you got a phone call that <laughs> derailed all of that. Uh, <laughs> what was your goal in leaving the show and then what was that phone call my goal was to go like make records and sign to a label and be Beyonce be JLo and I was doing that down in Miami Florida I was living down there and working down there with a label and getting a ton of writing done and learning a lot meeting a lot of people and I think at the point that the wicked call came to come back and stand by for Adina Eden was leaving to go do Brooklyn and it was just a straight-up offer so it was like no skin off my back. I just go back and like, you know, back then, I don't know what the rules are these days, but back then as a standby, you just had to be within a five block radius. So I knew that I could go to the gym. I knew I could be up in my dressing room writing. And I knew that I could fly back to Florida every day off if I needed to, because there really was no, there was no rigor there. I was a standby. I was literally standing around. And at that point I had finished my big five song demo or whatever that the label was going to shop to the majors and whatever. We all agreed it was a fine time for me to leave. And once I was there and in the thick of like learning the show and trailing Adina and watching it all happen, I was like, oh shit, I love this. Like I love this role and I love this theater and I love these people. I just, God, I really hope they'll consider me to take over when she leaves. Cause like, I want to do this. I want this life. And then and the rest is history, I guess. So I just have to imagine it must be so odd to be in a show, but like not have to be there at all. It's a very odd relationship mm -hmm. to have. And I know yeah. you mentioned it was you and Megan Hilty at the time, the yeah. fabulously talented Megan Hilty, an yes. incredibly kind person. Um, yeah. And you talked about how you guys would be in the dressing room sometimes and you guys would knit, you'd go to the gym. What was, <laughs> what, what was, what did you do each night when you weren't going on? There was knitting happening. There was TV watching. We had visitors come over. We would rehearse a lot because also in the Gershwin, the Gershwin is a massive house and it has its own rehearsal space, the floor above our dressing room. So we would rehearse a lot. We go to the gym. We could go to movies. We would watch, you know, to make sure that we were still, because when you don't go on every day, you don't know the rhythm and the pattern. But I was really only there for like three or four months before I took over. And there was a week she went on vacation. I was on for a week and there were a couple of times she was out. So I don't know, it just kind of flew by. I tried to write Rhett George. He was in the cast at the time, I believe. He was the ribbon dancer in the cast. And he and I were writing music together because back then, you know, like the label would just send me home with a bunch of tracks that were already made. And I was just writing to track. So yeah, you'd go out and have dinner with friends or whatever. I don't even know what the standby situation is anymore. Let's take a quick break. And we're back. So I want to take you back to January, 2005. I've always wanted to ask you about this, but I didn't know if this was a subject I could ask you about. And so oh, we'll everyone asks, everyone asks. I'm going to ask with more specificity. Okay. So it's the matinee performance. And I'm actually going to ask, I don't think I'm looking for the answer that others are looking for out of the question. Okay. So it's the matinee performance before Adina Menzel's last performance in Wicked. She injures herself during the melting scene, which takes place minutes before the final curtain. The show is stopped for 45 minutes. I believe Joey McIntyre, who was Fiero at the time, came out, told the audience, no, I haven't watched the bootleg told the audience it was going to be a 45 minute delay. Uh, Adina's taken to the hospital. You come on after 45 minutes and finish out the show. What was going through your head at that moment in being called into the show, which I imagine is already a rare experience and then being called in at such a strange time in the show. We were upstairs rehearsing because I was meant to take over three days from then. We were upstairs in the rehearsal room, me and the stage manager. Someone came up and said, Kristen, you got to come. Something happened. So Kristen goes running down. I think I just kind of stayed up there because I was like, you know, what could honestly be the problem? But she wasn't coming back. So we kind of went down there and it was obvious that like something awful had happened. And obviously they weren't moving her because they didn't know what had happened. And this was going on for a while. But I think the general consensus was kind of like, there's 
not even five minutes left of the show. They're not going to, they don't have to refund the audience's money at this point because, you know, they're not going to do the rest of the show. And also we didn't know if she was going to get up also. Like we didn't know if it was not that bad, like no one really knew. And then the 45 minute delay was not me getting ready. The 45 minute delay was them dealing with her getting the ambulance there. Like, you know, you don't just pick someone up who like that took forever. And mostly like everyone else in the cast was like a disaster. It was scary. This was their leader. This was their, like, this was terrifying. But for me, again, I just felt like that's not my place. I'm not a member of the cast yet. I I didn't feel it. Like this isn't my place to be like dramatic or like involved. I just kind of was staying on the outskirts, like observing and very certain that like, ultimately they're going to take her to the hospital and, and we're going to, the curtain's going to come down and the audience is going to go home and then we'll figure out like what's happening tonight. Cause it was a matinee of a Saturday and we'll figure out if I'm going on tonight, whatever. And then I think it came down from the head producers, of course, whoever made the decision that we're finishing the show, then it was Shoshana go get ready. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Go get ready. And I got ready in seven minutes. Oh my God. Yeah. Wait, were you green? Yeah. It was a shitty job. Like it was like a quick hack job, but from the lights and audience, you can't tell. Right. But yeah, they got me ready in seven fucking minutes and they put me out there. And I just feel like A, I was in shock, but B, there's just something, it's like, you know, it's probably like a mother's instinct. Like there's just something that kicks in where you're like, you're looking around and everyone around you is in pieces and you're like, okay. It was like a crash course in being a lead, but I had Harvey and I had Marissa. So I knew what it looked like to strap on a cast and pull them up. You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, you have five minutes, do your job, like go out there and do your job. You know? So I popped up through the hole. Fiero, I thought you'd never get here. He's fucking sobbing, inconsolable. He can't even get his line out. And I'm like, here for you. I'm your, I got, you know what I mean? We finish, we go, you know, I had to do the curtain call, which I refused to bow. I like walked out there, but I was like, you, I'm not bowing for three minutes of, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I get it. And that was it. And then I remember we went down and the crew guys were playing poker in between shows like they always did. And I was like, she'll be back, you guys. And they're like, she ain't coming back. And I'm like, she'll be fine. She'll be back. No one knew how bad it was. No one had any clue what was happening until we did. And then it was very clear that I was saddled with the task of finishing out this icon's closing weekend where people had flown in from all over the world to see her fly for the last. It was awful. It was awful. So as you said, interestingly, you were set to take over the role. I would hope that, that would have given you some sort of feeling as though this role was yours to take Not on, yet. but obviously you were taking it on. Not yet. Mm, Do you okay. know what I mean? Like my role began on Tuesday. So it was a weird fine line of like, I'm doing my job as the standby still. Do you know what I'm saying? This It's still this woman's time. It's still this woman's role. And I say that it was awful only because it felt terrible to navigate. But the audience could not have been more lovely. They could have been absolutely hateful. They could have asked for their money back. They could have thrown things. They could have boot. Like it could have been any number of things, honestly, because that's how violent Adina Menzel fans are. Like they are rabid. And I just remember that it was nothing but love from all directions, but it was, it certainly was not my opening weekend by any means. It was definitely the, the finishing up of my job as a standby for sure. Plus, like someone was terribly injured, right? And it always feels weird when you keep going at work when someone in your team is sidelined. That never feels good, ever. Like the show must go on. And then especially add add the ritual of theater where it's like there's an audience, lights, applause, curtain and everything. And I I imagine that only heightens it. Do you recall, so the Sunday performance happens, was meant to be her last, you do the show, during the final moments of the show, iconically, she comes out in the red tracksuit. Love <laughs> that red tracksuit. Broadway history. Did you feel that sense of exchange? Because for me, at the time as an audience member, I was not present at the live performance. Bootleg, sorry. <laughs> but in watching that performance, I felt that it gave Adina's time with the show yeah. a button and sort of allowed 
for audiences to give her that final applause they were craving and to welcome you in. Did you feel that shift? Oh, 100%. I just felt like I shouldn't have been there. I felt like it should have been like, mm. let me do the show, let me bow and let me leave. But but I do see that there was some beauty and grace and mm. sort of like the passing of the torch and us being there together. Yeah, it was just all hard. No one teaches you like how to navigate that. And I certainly was very young, but I think that we, we all did the best we could. And, you know, it, again, it's just heartbreaking to see someone so hurt and to see them you know, yeah. robbed of a, a massive moment, but I, I think we all look back on it and now we laugh and now we, you know, she was high as a kite on painkillers and like, you know what I mean? And she, again, <laughs> yeah. she was such a badass. She showed up in a freaking Adidas tracksuit. Like, and that became legend. Like when I left the show, they gave me a red tracksuit that everyone had signed and like, it became like a thing, but yeah, it was, it's, I don't know. You just, you, you, there's so many feelings around it, but it just didn't feel right, appropriate to indulge in that, in that, yeah. you know? So you come into the show, you take this role that was already made famous by this person and you completely reinvent it in the most exciting way. So let's talk I about do? those riffs. Yes, <laughs> honestly, I'm not going to play like the favorite alphabet game because I know that's like gauche, but... It's very touchy. <laughs> so I want to talk about your riffs though because I remember, I'm sorry to keep saying I like was a part of bootleg culture, but... Oh, please. Mm, Okay, so I remember buying multiple bootlegs of various performances of yours of Wicked because you would there were these vocal inflections that you would change out in certain performances, and I needed to. They were like Pokemon to me. I had to catch them all. Um, <laughs> I want to particularly point out you do a performance of No Good Deed on the Martha Stewart show, in which you do an alternative ending to No Good Deed, in which you go up at the end. It's amazing. Let all odds be agreed. I'm wicked through and through since I cannot succeed. Fiero saving you. I promise no good deed. Will I attempt to do again? No good deed. Will I Now they're doing way higher shit than I ever did. Those kids are it's like wild. But can you sort of talk to me about coming into this role and reinterpreting it to your vocal stylings? Well, I, I think that that's a tender subject because I wouldn't okay. have said reinterpreting because there was a very tight leash there. But if you if you think about it, like there really hadn't been a pop musical theater score like that up until that point. So for me, it was like a kid in a candy store. I'm like, I get to sing. I get to use my full facility, my full instrument. And it was never meant to be disrespect. It was never meant to be, I have a better idea. You know what I mean? It was just like, it felt like it's play for me. And if it were an acting beat that I chose to alter, there wouldn't be a conversation, but because it's the music, you know, it'd be like, I guess, changing a line. If I right. change the black dots on the page, I might as well change one of my spoken lines and dialogue as well. And I respect that and I totally get it. It was a tight leash and I, I, I did get spoken to a lot about it. And, you know, it was never meant to be showy-offy and it was never meant to be disrespectful. It was just, I am a singer. I am a musician here. And that is not necessarily something that is common in musical theater. It's not necessarily encouraged all the time in musical theater. The, the vocalists that are musicians are rare. I try to teach that when I work with kids. Like, be a musician. Don't just be a robot who's parroting back what they hear. I mean, it's just one of the best scores ever written for a female in musical theater, I think. I put it up there with like the Fanny Bryce score. I put it up there with, I mean, any, any, any Kathy in last five years, like some of the greatest female oh. scores. Like, Which song is more fun to sing? No Good Deed or The Wizard and I? Oh, you know what was funny is in the year and a half or two years or however long that I played and sang that role, the challenges would change. So all of a sudden there'd be a week of time where I'm like, I can't hold the last note of wizard. I'm running out of breath. And then, then that wouldn't be a problem anymore. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm, I'm not holding out then and no good deed. I can't make it. You know, like the, the challenges would just shift, but I think no good deed was my sweet spot when I was doing the show. In the context of the show, the ferocity, where we've gotten to in the story, what's happening and vocally, it just was like, I, I just beasted that. I just loved that song. 
But now I think the beautiful, like when people in my request sections of my shows now request no good deed, I'm like, I, what do you want me to do with that? There's this is like, it's all context. It's all story. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's too hard to stand alone. But Wizard and I, I think is one of the most beautiful introductions to a character you've ever, I mean, it's, I, I never will tire of singing that song ever. Without a doubt. One last wicked question. In our previous interview, you mentioned that the experience of the fandom was, quote, more than you were prepared to handle. In your answer, you alluded to the fact that you may have been less than gracious than you would be now, which I do want to note was not my experience with you when I met you at the mm-hmm. stage door in 2006 at the Thank Toronto God. production in which I drove <laughs> from Pittsburgh to see you and Megan Hilty. But I just, I was wondering if you could unpack that a bit because I think there's something really incredible there that I think you got at earlier on in our interview, which is just the idea that gratitude is something that's learned over time. And I'm just wondering if you could sort of comment on those early experiences and how you may have changed. I try to have compassion for for earlier versions of myself because I, I mm. would for other people, I would say, listen, when we know better, we do better. And until we don't, we are literally doing the best that we can. And I try very hard to have that compassion for myself. Just no one prepares you. Adina never pulled me aside and said, Rich, like, this is what's coming your way. You know what I mean? Um, these are the expectations from above. This is your job as the leader of this cast. This is what you're putting your body through every day. Like, this is what to expect when you go out the stage door. Like, also keep in mind that bootleg culture and the YouTube that all started that year. And the ability to be seen and criticized was brand new. I just think that it's a lot to expect of a human. It's a lot. But if you know what you're in for and you know how to care for yourself, you know how to have boundaries and you sort of have an idea like, okay, from this hour to this hour, my life is not my own. I am literally giving for all of these hours. Then when I'm not, here are the things I need to do to replenish. And I learned that over time. But at first it felt like, how how dare you expect more from me? I just I've been here for six hours already. Like I got here, stretched out, warmed up my body. They painted me and pulled at me for an hour. Then I'm changing clothes and sweating and running around this place and giving you blood on the stage. And you still want more from me. This is how my mind worked back then. I already did my job. It's not that I didn't want to do the stage door. And it's not that I didn't want to meet people and sign things and take pictures, but it It's just an energy that like some nights you're ready to go out there and give more. And some nights you like it's the last thing you can handle. And I think what I've learned now is like, if you really can't do it, don't go out there, go home. And if you need to take a minute and just remember that like the job is not over when I take off the costume and the makeup, it's not over. It's not over until you shut the door on your car and are on your way home. Mm. And so that's something I've learned from making mistakes. You know, I'll meet people now who are like, I met you at the stage door. <laughs> and I'm like, yep, got it. <laughs> Got it. I apologize. You know, when you know better, you do better. And, you know, stage door culture was new back then too. Uh We didn't really have that craziness at Hairspray. Kind of, because Harvey was a big deal. And then after the Tonys and stuff, but they weren't looking for me. I was in the ensemble, you know? So at first it was super cool. And then it was a lot. And then you, you know, you also have people who take advantage of that. There were a lot of manipulative stories and ways to get backstage and gifts and all this kind of, it's crazy. But no one, you know, there was no gatekeeper. There was no protection. There was no teacher. There was no, now I have a lot of people and things in place and experience. Now I know. And now I know what to tell the kiddos. I so appreciate your ability to inflect on that and to recognize behavior in yourself that is not aligned with the person that you are today. Because, right, we are people that change and we learn. And I just think that the ability to talk about that, frankly, is really helpful for a lot of people. So I want to jump ahead to a somewhat recent performance. Your live performance of She Used to Be Mine from Waitress, the Broadway musical of which you starred in 2019. This performance was captured for Broadway.com in their studio. It's my favorite cover of the song. Just a little to bring back the fire in her eyes. 
you're so dialed in within that performance. And so I'm curious as an actress, how do you go get into that place when you're not within the musical structure, which sees the song typically come out after two hours of buildup. But in that moment, you have to sing the 11 o'clock number just on the spot. And like, I go back and watch that performance and you are just, like I said, you are so plugged in. How do you go there? These songs and these roles that I've been lucky enough to play, it's like they're already running through my veins. So if you're lucky enough to be gifted a role that you so intimately, deeply connect with, it isn't a job. It's just like a no-brainer. That song, and I think that the song itself is a no-brainer because it is the most covered. I mean, everyone resonates, everyone cries, everyone covers it. Everyone feels like I'm singing directly to them. It's everyone's story. Even kids where I'm like, who used to be yours? Who (laughs) used to be yours? You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. It's just like that song is the biggest gift. There's something about Sarah's writing that is just the most open wound of vulnerability. She doesn't spare words. She doesn't take a while to get to the heart. It's literally like an open chest with just a beating heart. Like that's yeah. how I feel about her writing. It it's so vulnerable and so dropped in and so raw that it, it makes my job that much easier. So during a recent Instagram live with singer Tori Kelly, you spoke about how earlier in your career it was more difficult as a theater performer to cross over to recording music. You mm. mentioned Smash, Glee, and American Idol as examples of culture that came about and really upended that. You said, quote, now you're not only allowed to, you're expected to. But right. when you were first coming up, what was the climate like and how much was your desire to do something outside of the norm seen as a liability of some kind. It was absolutely a liability. I was always being policed for being too pop, right? So it felt like I was too Broadway to be pop and I was too pop to be Broadway. Gratefully, roles like, you know, things like Hairspray and Wicked came along. So I found my little home and my niche, but they were very separate back then. I think Adina Menzel and Heather Headley were probably the only two Broadway people who had crossed over, who had been taken on by a major label and who had even mildly successful projects come out, you know? Other than that, like every time I went for a meeting or or shared my music, it was always like, yeah, it's a little too Broadway. And in my mind, I'm like, I am the least Broadway Broadway there is. Like I don't, it felt like you couldn't please anyone. And yeah, obviously that's not, not the case anymore. So with Superhero, your first album in 2008, I imagine that had to have been scary for you then to go and do this thing that there wasn't so much of a precedent for. How did that first uh, record come about? It came about because I was working with Brian McKnight's manager at the time. I met them at the beginning of Wicked and they worked with me through Wicked and, and, you know, got me cool opportunities like the Soul Train Awards and the Soul Train Christmas Starfest and things like that. And, and so, you know, the, the plan was when I finished Wicked, I would move out to LA and we would like really try to make stuff happen. So we had some, some showcases and, and the plan was I was going to come out here and, you know, start making a record and start you know, and so I moved out here and during Wicked tour, I did a ton of writing. I would do the show. I'd come home every night. I would write and record, write and record. So I had a bunch of stuff ready. And then I moved to LA and I immediately hooked up with a bunch of songwriters and producers out here. And I kept writing and kept recording and basically just like waiting for Brian and and that manager to like do anything. And they just like, there'd be weeks and weeks and months at a time where I wouldn't hear from the manager and like, just like all the terrible shady music business stuff you can imagine. And in the meantime, I just kept writing and I just kept writing. And then I, I had some, some friends who were very wealthy and very supportive of what I was doing. And they're like, why don't we just give you a chunk of money to like get started on this? We know you'll be happier if you just like, so I just started recording one song and then another and then another. And then I was like, fuck it. Why don't I just like take a loan and like make the record? Like I just, it really was just born of impatience and and frustration mm-hmm. and sort of like big middle fingers in the air. Like, you're not going to help me out. You're not going to do what you said. I'll just do it on my own and you'll see. Plus I had gone through like a lot of life stuff and and singing and writing and recording was like my way through it. So that's how it happened. It wasn't, I never intended to put out a record on my own. I never intended to be independent. I never intended to put four records out on my own and have my own label and all of that. It just was out of necessity. No one, no one wanted me. No one was interested. So 
that wasn't going to stop me from making music, you know? And I know in the case of the fourth album, you know, you did this fundraiser for the album. You raised 130000 or what do you know the number is? Something like that. Something yeah, like that. Something, something up like there. That. And I'm just curious. I mean, like, to me, there is a rigor and a sense of... Um, for an artist to do that, to sort of work on that side, there's a tenacity. That's the word I'm looking for. There's a tenacity <laughs> about that. No, I won't accept that. No, there's a tenacity okay. about that in terms of people that are handed opportunities, sometimes deservingly so, but other people who work for opportunities. And I really felt like that was an incredible moment, not just as a body of work, and I, I love that album, but also just to see you producing for the fourth time an album on your own and putting the mechanisms in place to make it happen. How do you feel in those moments when you have to put yourself out there as the producer of your work, when you might want to wear the hat only of artists? Or are those multiple hats you, you like to wear at the same time. I still am learning how to navigate all that. And I think that what I've learned over time, and I still kick and scream about it, is like you have, for better or for worse, created a reality where you are wearing all of those hats. And I think what I've just tried to learn how to do is really try to take my time and give my attention to each one as I'm wearing it instead of trying to pile them all on top of each other. And when you're making a record... I think it's really important now I have learned I'm very impatient. And when I've, when it's done, I just want to get it out. And now I've learned like, here's the creative time. Let it be creative. Then shift into business mode, then shift into like pre-release mode. Like, you know, there's just modes of it and it's, it's hard. It's always a learning curve. And, and I think it never stops being that because I always want to do better, more, better, different. Always. I just always want to elevate and do better than last time. So there's always some new challenge. You say, Hey, I'm ready to, to graduate up to the next level. It's like Mario brothers, every freaking level gets harder and has new and different challenges. You think you mastered jumping on the mushrooms and then it's like, now there's this other thing coming out of the sky. Great. So it's a constant, it's constant. But I, I mean, you know, I would love for someday for that not to be the case, but then I look at the ones that I admire, you know, JLo and Beyonce and all those women, and they're not just showing up to rehearsal and being told what to do. They're involved in every part of the process and that's why they are great. And that's why I respect them. And whether you like it or not, like that's, that's who I am. I love that. So my last question, and then I have a couple of like small questions for the Patreon of like simple questions. But my last question for you, <laughs> you are someone who my sense of you is that it's hard for you to be proud of yourself. Is that a correct characterization? <laughs> yeah, I think it depends on the thing. But okay. yeah. yeah. So if you were to look at something that you've achieved professionally and say, I'm really proud of that. Is there a performance? Is there a song? Is there something that comes to mind that you hold in your heart in a way because of whether it be the experience or what you felt you created? Um, is there one that comes to mind? I think the things that I'm the most proud of are my albums. I think probably really largely O'Farrell Street and Spectrum, just like O'Farrell Street for the sort of like body of work that it is and the writing and then spectrum for like the massive leap in quality and, and attention to detail and, and the massive leap. And like, I knew what we wanted to do. And I'm like, well, I'll never be able to get the money together to do that. We'll never be able to afford a 150, whatever, some dollar album. And I took the leap and we did, and it's, it's changed the game for me. So my records, I'm the most proud of, you know, performances are fleeting and taking on characters. I'm very proud of Waitress. That was a huge challenge for me, huge challenge to come back, to be in that vulnerable of a position again, to be judged and criticized and to have a very different world of social media than I did 15 years ago, to be able to voice their opinions about what I'm doing, to play an ingenue at the age that I am, to, to approach a role that I think that I approach very differently from some of the other women to approach a role that is not a ferocious woman like a Fanny Bryce and a CC Bloom and an Alphaba, but to try to attempt something smaller and, and more still. That was, I'm very proud of that. Do I find that it was perfect or that I triumphed every show? Absolutely not. But it was, it was scary. But I am proud. I am proud. Ugh, it's hard to say, but like I'm proud of that, that time at Wicked. I couldn't see it then, but like we went back, you know, for the 16, what was it, 16 years this past year? They brought some of us back. 
Okay. Well, no, wait. Last wait, year. 19, last year yeah, yeah, 16. 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So they brought us back to, to like sit and watch the show. And I just had the hardest time. I just wept through the whole thing. I just couldn't believe I ever did that. Like I'm watching this girl run around the stage and like sing these songs and wear that dress. And like, I'm like, I can't believe I ever did that. I did that. Jesus Christ. But I think it's like anything in life. You don't know how you get through it. You just do. So I'm, I'm proud of that for sure. I'm proud to be part of Hairspray and that family. I'm proud to be part of the Broadway community at all. Like, And the Broadway community is, is lucky to have you amongst it. Thank you so much. I just have so long been a fan of yours. And then I've had the good fortune of meeting you in 2018 and getting to know you and getting to know the lovely person behind that lovely voice. And I can really say in my heart of hearts, you are just a magical human being. Magical. Ask anyone that knows you and they will tell you that same thing. I mean, John Hill and I literally are text messages are just <laughs> us going back and forth about how much we love you. But I just, I want to thank you so much for your time and for being such a great, so thoughtful about your experiences and just a great conversationalist. It was really, really a pleasure. I love you. Your energy is infectious and I will, I will show up with you, for you, to you anytime that I can. So thank you for being such a wonderful champion and source of support. I truly appreciate you. I will always be in your corner. Always. Um, Thank you so much. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced by Alden Peters with additional editing by Ryan Killian Krause. We just want to take one more moment to thank our Patreon subscribers who make this possible. If you are not subscribing to our Patreon, do it today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.